Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the National Community Radio Network. Today's program was produced on Wiliakali country of the Barkindji Nation, and I'd like to pay respects to traditional owners and their elders past and present from across stolen lands and acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I'm Megan Williams. Today on Earth Matters, we explore how uniting Indigenous worldviews with emerging legal concepts has strengthened the calls for rights for nature. This week's program features a webinar hosted by the Resources, Environment and Development Group at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The program was produced by Dan Schultz of Two Dry Femmes Water Watch, and I'd like to thank Dan, all the speakers and the ANU for sharing this content with Earth Matters. And one of our speakers today is Dr Anne Paulina, who is a Nikonawara woman and chair of the Matawara Fitzroy River Council. And before we get into it, I want to share some news from the Kimberley. The Matawara Fitzroy River is right now experiencing disastrous and unprecedented flooding. And the Matawara Fitzroy River Council is fundraising to support the community affected by this disaster. You can support this effort at www.matawara.org slash donate. And we're going to start here with a full introduction of the webinar and the speakers by Dan Schultz. It is World Water Week this week, uh, and World Water Week is a leading conference on global water issues held every year since 1991, and it's a place to explore new ways of managing water and tackling humanity's greatest challenges, from food security to health to agriculture, biodiversity and climate. And we are really lucky this week to be able to share with you some excerpts from a webinar hosted by the Resources, Environment and Development Group at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And this webinar is titled Australian Rivers Are Ancestral Beings. And it contains a really important dialogue about the rights of rivers and the concept of rivers uh, as having legal personhood. And the speakers are really tackling ways to rethink our relationship to rivers, to revitalise ancient knowledges in a contemporary legal context, and address the big injustices of water inequalities in our rivers, highlighting the crucial role that Indigenous scholars, leaders, and cultural practitioners have for the future of rivers. These talks feature Dr. Anne Paulina, a Nikina woman from the Madawara Fitzroy River, who is really leading the way in finding approaches to protect the World Heritage listed Matawara Fitzroy River from irrigation and mining development by fighting for that legal recognition of Indigenous first law and the ancestral rights of rivers to be recognised within Western legal systems. We'll also hear from Dr Erin O'Donnell, a water law and policy specialist at the University of Melbourne, who in 2018 was appointed to the inaugural Birurun Council. The Birurong Council is a statutory body created by the Yarra River Protection Act of 2017 and it provides independent advice to the Victorian government and advocates for protecting and improving the Yarra River in Victoria. So we are really lucky at Waterwatch to be able to republish these talks and I really hope our listeners find the words of Anne and Erin stimulating 
during this World Water Week, I think we're all challenged to try to think differently about our river systems, not as resources, but as complex living entities with memory, story, culture, and spirit, and rivers that are their own unique and dynamic expressions of life, awake with ancestral spirit and with an innate connection to its traditional owners, who have cared for and understood these living systems for millennia. So without further ado, here is Anne Polina with with her opening remarks from the webinar, Rivers Are Ancestral Beings. Thank you all for being online. It's a, a real honour to come and bring this work to you. Um, I want to acknowledge that um, on Jugun and Yaru country in Broome, Ngayu home. Broome is my home and I acknowledge Jugun and Yaru people. This is a very interesting conversation and as we say, it's a start, it's an emergence of a conversation in regards to seeing rivers as ancestral beings. We as custodians of the Fitzroy River from the beginning of time when I introduced myself I said which means I'm a woman who belongs to the Fitzroy River so I am duty bound under a law of obligation to protect this river and to do everything I can in partnership with the elders and all of the nations who live along the Fitzroy River so from that perspective we have always seen the river as a living ancestor we cry with it we sing with it we dance with it we know that it holds not just our memory, but the memories from the beginning of time. So rivers are very, very important, not just in our nation, but across the world globally. And um, I was quite excited some time back to hear about the Wanganui, the Funganui, and how um, the, the custodians had um, registered as legal personhood. And I came and I sat on the riverbank with the elders and I said, do you realise that there's a river in New Zealand and it's got, um, a, it's recognised as a legal entity? and talked about personhood and they looked at me as if I was a bit wacky and they said to me when I spoke of our river, e not a human being. The river is not a human being. It's an ancestral being. And so that took me to a place where I thought, well, we really need to start to look at how do we push the boundaries of legal pluralism to acknowledge not just nature's rights, but ancestral beings' rights in nature and to bring that pluralism into having meaningful context in the world in which we see rivers across the globe under so much stress and um, wondering what the humans are doing. So from that perspective, we decided as a group of um, scholars to look at how we could push the boundaries of legal pluralism and start to extend in a way beyond nature's rights to the rights of indigenous people to have our ancestors recognized in law. So from that perspective, what we will do now is just share different components of um, this presentation with the view that Erin has to leave at half past in half an hour. So we're doing this up so that we can create a conversation because this is all about dialogue. This is about dialogic action. How do we decolonize the process of legal pluralism to move towards meaningful engagement with indigenous people across the globe, not just in our country, but starting with this story. So um, yes, thanks Erin. I'll uh, let you give the next presentation and we'll tip tap co. Thank you.
You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Yeah. I'm just trying to find my way. I'm just trying to find a way. Hope that day's a brighter day. So that's, that's a really wonderful place to start. And I want to keep that idea of relationships in your mind as we move through this next part of the conversation. Because I think it's something that settler state law and certainly uh, Western law in general has trouble with. We tend to define relationships as being through the lens of rights. And so that sets up our relationship to be at an interface of conflict. Sometimes that's where you need to be in order to progress an environmental agenda or a rights-based agenda. But I think this conversation around rivers and their, their reconceptualization in settler state law and Western law as ancestral beings really starts to challenge that foundation. But let's put this into a global setting. Rights of nature have been emerging around the world and they are accelerating. Since 2006, we've had growing examples around the world where nature has received rights in specific ways. So constitutions have been changed. We can see that Ecuador in 2008 was the first place in the world to recognise the rights of nature in its constitution. Uh, There have been court cases in India. There's been new legislation in places like Aotearoa, New Zealand that Anne just mentioned with the case of Te Awatupua. That was the one that got all the headlines. That was the river being recognised as a legal person. But of course, there was the example of Te Urawera, the national park that was recognised as a legal person and was the first in New Zealand to receive that status. And you can see again, local laws, constitutional court cases, statutes, constitutional amendments happening across the globe as rights of nature continue to rise. Rivers have been at the forefront of this. And I think that's a really interesting question for all of us to maybe sit with and think about what is it about rivers in particular that seems to attract the human imagination, that seems to ask us this question of what it means to be in relation with the world around us. What is it about rivers that makes them identifiable, that makes them personifiable, that brings us into this conversation about the recognition of rivers as persons in the law. Twenty seventeen was the banner year for this change, and we saw Wanganui River, Te Awatupua in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the Rio Atrato in Colombia, and the Gunja and Yamuna rivers in India all received legal rights that year. In the same year, right here in Australia, the Birrarung, the Yarra River, was also recognised as a single and living and integrated entity. And so that's not precisely the same as a legal person. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but we can see this idea flowing all the way around the world as rivers rise in people's imaginations, as people seek, often quite desperately, for new legal tools to protect rivers. So what unites a lot of these rivers are two things. Firstly, they are beloved. They are often beloved by many different kinds of people for many different reasons. They are also almost always highly impacted places where 
the impact of capitalism, of colonisation, of human development pressures, it has been extreme. So these are not usually pristine places that we've identified as far from human impact that we want to preserve. These are places that humans are intimate with. So when thinking about um, how to recognise nature or a river as a person or an ancestral being in law, one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves is what powers does this entity actually need? What problem are we trying to solve in recognising it in this way? And therefore, what legal reform are we actually looking for? So at the top of the list here is the legal person. This is the kind of base level model um, for, for legal personhood in Western legal systems, particularly in common law jurisdictions like Australia. The most common example that you're probably all familiar with is the corporation. Now, human beings are also legal persons in specific circumstances, but it essentially means it's the ability to hold rights and duties in the law. Nari Nafeen defines it as a statement by the law of who and what matters to the law. Typically, the rights that we see associated with the legal person, are the right to go to court. So this is legal standing. It's the right to sue. It's also the ability to be sued. So it gets you into court. It's the right to hold property. It's the right to enter into and enforce contracts. These are the typical ideas that tend to be associated with a legal person. If we move on, the subject of rights is very similar. But instead of having a bunch of rights and powers that are assumed to be attached to it, as with the legal person, the subject of rights requires courts or the legislature to articulate specific rights. And so you can see that that's a bit of a more flexible model, but it's potentially um, a little bit less of a powerful model, depending on what kinds of rights are actually articulated as being attached to that subject. Moving down again, we have the living person. Now, to date, um, setting aside a couple of these cases, the only people that have been recognised as a living person have been human beings. So the idea that nature or a river can be recognised as a living person starts to bring it much more into the sphere of humanity. And that brings in other rights. So we're starting to see things like, do human rights apply to the river? Could a river be killed if it's recognised as a living person? Finally, we have the idea of the living being or living entity. This is not a legally powerful term. This is the, the same way that the, the Birrarung has been recognised in law in Victoria. But it is a recognition that the river is alive. The river and its lands are a single living and integrated entity. And so it articulates the river as a being with whom we can be in relation. And so that starts to take us into this direction of the ancestral person. Here are some examples. So we've talked a little bit about some of these examples already. Um, the Rio Atrato in Colombia, this was a case decided by the Constitutional Court of Colombia, and it was decided on the grounds that the court felt that the only way to protect the rights of people was to recognise the rights of the river. And they did so by recognising the river as an entidad sujeto de derechos, which in my very bad Spanish means an entity that is the subject of rights. And of course, because it is a subject, they had to enumerate those rights. And they had the rights to protection, conservation, maintenance and restoration. So those are the rights that the river now holds. You'll note there that it doesn't necessarily have the right to own property, for instance. So that impedes the ability of the river to participate in particular human contexts. The Wanganui River combined two ideas. It's an indivisible and living whole from the mountains to the sea, as well as a legal person with all the rights, powers, duties and liabilities of a legal person. So putting those two together, 
creates the idea of a living entity with those significant legal powers. Gunja and Yamuna rivers brought a whole lot of different ideas together. Um, they're juristic, they're legal, they're living entities. They've got the, the rights and duties of a legal person as well as the rights and liabilities of a living person. And so that immediately led to some really interesting outcomes and some very creative uses of the law. So an activist has filed a police report claiming that the Yamuna River has been murdered because the court has recognised it as a living person. And it is so toxic and so polluted that the activist considers the river to be dead. So if it was a living person and it is now dead, then somebody must have killed it. So that's the kind of creativity that starts being opened up when we articulate these rivers as different kinds of persons. of really important Australian examples. So the Birrarung, the Yarra, is Australia's first and so far only river to be recognised in settler state law as a living and integrated entity. That's a really important milestone for the settler state, but of course, Indigenous peoples across Australia have been recognising country as alive for millennia, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of years. Country has always been with us. We have been part of country. And so the Matawara Fitzroy River is now formally recognised in the Fitzroy River Declaration as a living ancestral being with a right to life. You're listening to Life and Life Culture, Culture, Culture and the Big Issues. Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Why are we not learning? from the lessons of the Murray-Darling Basin and the Canning and the Swan River? Why are we prepared to take the risk and do things the same way rather than challenge ourselves in terms of transforming the way we care for our river systems? So I think that's a very, very important question. Um, and we are, asking, we are asking that question here in, in on the Fitzroy River because what we see at the moment is that it's just business as usual. There is no appetite and there does not seem to be any political goodwill from our state government to sit around the table and have a unified approach to how we have informed consent decision-making, how we cooperate and how we collaborate, not just with Indigenous people, but with our fellow Australians, because what we're talking about is an ethics of care that impacts on public interest matters and particularly the rights of rivers to live and flow. So from that perspective, we are asking government the same question. Why are we not learning from the lessons of the Murray-Darling Basin and the Canning and the Swan River? Why, when we come into these spaces, are we not looking at a Commonwealth policy that goes to 2030, which talks about how the watersheds and the bioregions are already mapped out into these sorts of ways to look at regional 
uh, governance of our waterways and our land and environment. So I don't have an answer for that. We have the same questions to government in which we are asking these same questions. Why are we prepared to create foreseeable harm in the Kimberley, not just in terms of the extraction of water, but some of the other unjust developments that are proposed for this region. So um, it's still a question that's hanging and the advocacy work that we are looking at doing with the Kimberley Land Council, with the PBCs, is to come up with these questions and these challenges to government from a solid perspective of what one of the elders said to do, which was to stand with one mind and one voice. It's very, very important for Indigenous leadership to be um, collaborating together and to have a solid position on where we want to go, because we believe um, that we do have these rights and that part of this is for the protection of these living water systems. And we want to do business differently in the Kimberley, particularly when the Mudawara, the Fitzroy River's life is at stake. things that happened in Western Australia a couple of years ago was the state government took Andrew Forrest to court on behalf of the Ashburton River and the traditional owners from the Ashburton River to um, challenge Andrew Forrest on a development proposal which he was advocating to put 10 weirs down the Ashburton River, a sacred river of the traditional owners, um, and the traditional owners with the state took Twiggy to court and was, sorry, Andrew Forrest to court and was found to have standing and merit. And so at the moment, um, that was the finding of, this, of the uh, State Arbitration Tribunal. But obviously, Mr Forrest is challenging that. So it's an ongoing conversation. But the point that I'm making is that it's now coming into these conversations and debates on how we push these boundaries to be able to start to recognise that our ancestors do have standing and merit, whether they're in the form of a river, a mountain, a tree or whatever. So I just wanted to bring that case to you in terms of saying that within Western Australia, within Australia, we have already a legal precedence being set, maybe not in terms of the interpretation of ancestral personhood, but the fact that the challenge was made because traditional owners believed the 10 weirs would kill their sacred ancestral being which has a right to live, but importantly, a right to flow. So from that point, we see that rivers are talking. They are communicating across the world globally and particularly in our nation. And the case I bring to point is the Barker, um, the Barker River that many of you are working on um, in conversation with Marawara. So traditional owners are the voice of the river. They are projecting this conversation and moving it into a space that I think is going to transform, you know, originally the rights of nature towards ancestral personhood. So we have a case, um, a story that we are publishing within the ANU and many of the people um, on the panel and watching today are part of that dialogue. And that paper is called A Tale of Two Rivers. So people are being brave, they are pushing the boundaries, they are bringing rivers into conversation and dialogue. But what we wanna say is that rivers are communicating, they are talking. We as traditional owners, as custodians of these rivers, um, are the voice for the rivers, with the rivers, and we believe that this is an exciting time and we don't know where it's going to go or if it will go anywhere. But what we're saying is that let's be brave, let's have the dialogue and let's see how we stand to protect 
something that I believe is the arteries of this planet that we really need to love and pay particular attention to. We believe this is an exciting conversation and we're very proud to be having it. And um, it definitely is not creating a distance between traditional owners. In fact, it was the traditional owners from the Marawara who said that this is a conversation that we need to have with the world and we need to push the boundaries in order to be able to protect sacred rivers nationally and globally. Galia Marble, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. discussing ways in which we can understand, respect, and recognize rivers as ancestral beings with a right to life. And I really hope you enjoyed this discussion. I would like to say a big thank you to Anne and for Erin for their presentation in the webinar. It was a really insightful and inspiring discussion, and I hope you got something out of it. And I'd also like to extend that thanks to the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU for allowing us to republish parts of the webinar. And if you would like to know about more about Anne's work with the Marawara Fitzroy River Council, you can visit uh, the, the council's website at marawarafitzroyriver.org. And Marawara is spelled M-A-R-T-U-W-A-R-R-A. That's marawarafitzroyriver.org. Or a simple Google of Anne Polina will give you some links to papers and media that she's been a part of. To chase up Erin's work with the Birrarung Council, you can visit water.vic.gov.au slash Council. And if you would like to contact Waterwatch Radio, you can find us on Twitter at Waterwatch Radio or shoot us an email on waterwatchradio at gmail.com. That's all we have for you this week, and it is World Water Week, so stay connected to those river systems that speak to you and mean a lot to you. I'll certainly be going out to the river this weekend, so I really hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Bye. This is Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, and this week we've borrowed a program from 2DRY-FM's Water Watch featuring a presentation from a webinar hosted by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'd like to thank the Resources, Environment and Development Group that shared these recordings with Waterwatch and Dan Schultz for sharing them here with me at Earth Matters. And a reminder, these webinars were recorded in 2022, but right now communities along the Matawara Fitzroy River are experiencing disaster with uncharacteristic and unprecedented flooding. The Matawara Fitzroy River Council is raising funds to support people who've lost their homes and you can donate at www.matawara.org donate. If you want to listen back on today's episode, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters or search Earth Matters 3CR wherever you get your podcasts. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is a production of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, but today's episode was first produced by 2DRY-FM's Waterwatch on Willie Kali Country. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
for more Earth Matters. Mm-hmm.